The AMA Moving Medicine podcast highlights innovation and emerging issues that impact physicians and patients today. Hello, this is the American Medical Association's Moving Medicine video and podcast. Today, we're joined by the AMA's newly inaugurated president, Dr. Jack Resnick, Jr., a practicing dermatologist and healthcare policy expert in San Francisco, who will share his thoughts about the priorities and challenges for his upcoming term as president. I'm Todd Unger, AMA's Chief Experience Officer in Chicago. First off, uh, congratulations, Dr. Resnick. Your inauguration was last night, so today, day one of your new presidency. I know this is a very busy time for you, so we appreciate you taking time to talk with us today. Um, you are taking the helm at a confusing time in the pandemic. We're definitely uh, not out of it, but we do have vaccines and new treatments that have strengthened our ability at least to avoid serious disease and hopefully uh, the kind of large scale deaths uh, that we've seen over the past two and a half years. Kind of given where we are uh, in this context, what do you see as your biggest priority right now? Thanks, Todd. It's uh, great to be here. And, and I agree, it does seem like we're in a new phase. I think rates of deaths and hospitalizations, fortunately, are well below their earlier peaks. But with this latest surge, the virus seems to be everywhere. And there is so much we still don't know about long COVID and other aspects of treatment. It's really been, I think, a tough last two plus years for the nation and, and for doctors and the profession in particular. But I have to say, I've, I've never been prouder to be a physician. Who can forget those early images from the first few months of the pandemic of doctors sleeping in tents and in their garages to protect their families? In the two years we've had of physicians combating misinformation, whether locally in their own communities or nationally on television, patiently explaining the benefits of vaccination to their patients, and doctors even facing some patients, as we know, in ICUs and emergency departments who were denying the realities of this virus, even as, as those patients were being intubated. You know, doctors have really put their lives on the line, and they've been holding together a healthcare system that has been stretched far too thin, sometimes I say with, with duct tape, basically. So one of my top priorities is really ensuring that our nation recognizes it's time to renew its commitment to physicians. I wanna ensure that we have a profession that future generations will really want to join. And I think we can achieve this through the AMA's recovery plan for America's physicians. We're gonna talk a lot more about the AMA recovery plan for America's physicians in the coming weeks. But uh, on this segment, talk about a few of the pillars of that particular plan. Uh, and one of those is obviously built around supporting physicians uh, and relieving challenges they face every day in caring for patients. It's this kind of load of burden, uh, among which on the list is this issue called prior authorization. Talk to us a little bit about how prior authorization has affected you and your patients and why it's so important right now for the AMA to take the lead in fixing it. We really do have to get these burdens out of the way that distract physicians from what brought us all to medicine in the first place, right? Taking care of our patients. And prior auth doesn't only sap just countless hours of physician time, it, it delays care and disrupts care for our patients. You know, Todd, I've only been in practice for about 20 years, but I remember even in the early years of my own being a physician when prior auth 
was focused on a, a few brand new, really expensive drugs and procedures where the evidence wasn't entirely clear yet. And now we've gotten to a place where the majority of drugs I prescribe are sometimes subject to prior auth. And the average physician around the country, our data shows, is, is doing 41 of these prior auths every week. It's, a, it's an outrageous number. I'm a, I'm a dermatologist, and I knew we'd kind of hit a new low when, in my own practice, I started having to do prior auths for generic topical cortisones like trimcinolone that have been around since the 1960s. It just, I don't really know what the, what the health insurer wants, wants me to do in those instances. And the system is so opaque. I think patients don't even realize that as a physician, when we're sitting at our computer and talking to them about their treatment, we often don't even know when we're prescribing what things are going to be on formulary, what things are going to require prior off. So the patients first learn uh, that they have a problem with their medication getting covered when they show up to the pharmacy and the pharmacist looks at them and says, hey, you know, your doctor's going to have to work on this for a while to get your health plan to, to cover it. And so begins this arcane, crazy process that involves faxes and what other industries still use faxes. Uh, what insurance companies then call after a rejection and an appeal, a peer-to-peer -peer review, where you end up on the phone as a physician with somebody at the health plan. They say peer-to-peer, -peer, but it's often not a physician and almost certainly not a physician of the same specialty. And I find myself kind of explaining to somebody who's never even heard of the disease that I'm treating, what the condition is and, and why the prescription I've written for um, is appropriate. And we know that patients sometimes just give up and abandon treatment in the midst of all this. It also really affects continuity of care. For example, I had a, a patient with really severe head-to-toe eczema, life upside down for years, no longer able to work, you know, struggle, struggling to kind of function as a parent. And in their case, they actually did need a newer biologic medication because they failed everything else. And it was, it was working great. This is a patient who they were a productive working citizen again, paying taxes, their family would come in and give me hugs because it had really transformed their life. Um, and I had gotten it approved. And a year later, the health plan said, oh, well, you need to do another prior auth because it's been a year. Uh -huh. So I dutifully filled out pages and pages of paperwork um, explaining how great the patient was doing and it got rejected. And their reason for the rejection was patient no longer meets severity criteria. So it becomes this Kafka-esque just mess. And so we, we've put a lot of efforts into this. And despite all this, the insurers haven't only ignored widespread calls for reform, but they've actually opposed them. So we now have right-sizing prior off at the AMA as a major legislative priority. We are supporting a bill in Congress to fix this for Medicare Advantage plans. And we're working with states around the country um, on some innovative bills to, to try to get this under control. Prior auth is, it's overused, it's costly, it's inefficient, it's opaque, and, and it harms patients. Curated from more than 3,000 major newspapers, magazines, and journals, the AMA Morning Rounds newsletter delivers the top stories in healthcare right to your inbox, Monday through Friday. Subscribe today and check out all the AMA's free newsletters at ama-assn.org slash myinbox. That's ama-assn.org slash myinbox. You know, listening to your stories, it triggered a memory of my first experience with prior auth, which was 
trying to get access to Accutane when I was in college and working with my dermatologist to do that. Uh, so what, a, uh, what an important problem and obstacle uh, for the AMA to work on. Uh, one of the other things that you've been really vocal about uh, is telehealth. Um, really coming out of a, a, you know, a slower growth period into front burner here in the course of the pandemic. Uh, and a really key part to keep what's been uh, so great about that, uh, uh, expanding and in process. And uh, your specialty dermatology has really benefited from innovation in this area, which people may not have thought about uh, at first blush. Tell us a little bit more about your experience with telehealth adoption and why, why you find it so important to advocate for its continued use uh, for all physicians. Yeah, I agree with you. Telehealth has really been a, a success story in these otherwise very difficult pandemic years. We saw just rapid expansion early on in insurance coverage and, and real widespread uptake, not just in dermatology, but across specialties. So before the pandemic, a typical patient who I would see, you mentioned uh, Accutane. So a patient who was coming in on, on Accutane for their acne or a patient who uh, has a complex autoimmune disease who might live two or three hours away, and I might see them in person to kind of get the diagnosis down and, and really talk through things with the patient the first time, but they were not allowed to do their follow-up with me where it would really make sense to do a telehealth follow-up to fine-tune their medications. Meanwhile, their insurer might cover them going to some large web-based corporate telehealth provider for their follow-up, but at that time they wouldn't cover the patient following up with the healthcare team who actually knew them well. So now patients can use telehealth with their existing healthcare teams and patients have really seen benefits, access, convenience, transportation time, as I mentioned, uh, less missed work, not having to deal with childcare issues around coming to the doctor's office. And on the physician side, we've really gained experience in every specialty in terms of figuring out, hey, these are the kind of situations where telehealth is really useful, like those medication follow-ups I mentioned. And here are other instances where maybe it's not the best and it's better to see a patient in person. If I've got a melanoma patient who's coming in for a full body check to make sure they don't have new skin cancers, not, not as easy a thing to do via telehealth. We've still got work to do. Um, that some of that expanded coverage is at risk and could go away. So we have to make sure that gets maintained. We have some treat, tweaks and regulation to do around making sure, for example, if you've got an established relationship with a patient in your state and they go away to travel for work or college or vacation, that you can continue to provide telehealth for them. And, and the FSMB, the Federation of State Medical Boards, has just released some, some great new proposals around that. I really wanna make sure we deploy telehealth where it's most needed. Where do we have big gaps? And, and I think that's around chronic disease, hypertension, diabetes, mental health care, as opposed to, again, what we were seeing years ago, which was just an expansion of kind of quick, easy access, maybe through some of those corporate providers when a patient wanted antibiotics they didn't need or something. And, and finally, I would say, I wanna make sure we deploy telehealth with an equity lens from the beginning. I learned a lot in my practice these last two years during the pandemic offering telehealth about not just rural, but a lot of other even um, urban and suburban marginalized populations who didn't have broadband access or the devices uh, to use telehealth as easily. And in that case, being able to do just audio only telehealth was really helpful. So we're working to, to maintain that. Well, you uh, clearly very 
passionate about advocacy and particularly about policy related to you know, some of the issues we talked about, prior auth, telehealth. Uh, you've testified uh, a lot on Capitol Hill on behalf of patients and physicians. Uh, and even uh, before stepping foot in medical school, you got a degree in public policy. I'm, I'm curious how you see, you know, that kind of background helping you in your new role and thinking about how you frame uh, the work ahead and, you know, why it's so important for other physicians to, to join you in the AMA and thinking about, uh, you know, uh, hearing about these issues beyond the exam room. Yeah, well, if you if you asked any of my friends and family who were in town for the inauguration these last couple of days, they would tell you I've kind of always been a policy nerd and politics was a big part of the family dinner table growing up. And, and you mentioned my my policy training background. But I think kind of more than the content of that training being useful, there's some broader lessons maybe that I've, I've taken from that experience. The first of which is people who show up get to set policy. They're the ones who get to make change. And that insider approach, being at the table, it doesn't mean that one has to be meek or apologetic of being at the table. It can be powerful and focused and really infused with purpose. A second takeaway for me is that it's really important that we bring data. And that's what we're really good at at the American Medical Association. But we also know the power of storytelling. And physicians have stories to share, and stories are really powerful. Stories about those things that need to change for us to be able to provide the best care for our patients. And part of my job in this role as president is to ensure that those physician stories are, are amplified and heard. And finally, I would say being just relentless in our efforts to accomplish those goals, even when we don't get something across the finish line in, in one given year, going back to Congress and trying again and not giving up, whether it's fixing Medicare payment or expanding patient access to care or keeping politicians from interfering in the exam room or criminalizing evidence-based care, whether it's in the realm of reproductive health or gender-affirming care, stopping the public health crisis of gun violence. There, there's so much to do, and I'm going to be relentless in, in showing up to get those things done. Well, speaking of stories to tell, uh, you grew up in the South in Shreveport, Louisiana, and you've said that that, that experience helped shape and influence your perspective and, and also your priorities. Tell us a little bit more about that. Well, I, I loved growing up in Shreveport, actually. Um, Louisiana has great food incredible music, beautiful scenery. Last night in my inaugural, I did speak about my deep commitment to our AMA's work in health equity. And in my youth, I did also see racism. I saw inequities, and certainly those are not unique to the South. I try to approach this topic with a great deal of humility. There are some people in, in your audience today who have far more health equity experience and expertise than I do, and some who bring lived experiences that, that I do not. So I'm a little hesitant to answer your question and kind of center my own experiences here, but, but you asked, so, so I'll mention a few aspects. I think among the many privileges that were afforded to me by birth was a family who really recognized inequities in our community, and in some cases spoke up. I have an uncle, one of my dad's brothers named Myron, and he started an anti-segregation newspaper with several friends in the 1950s, actually, as an undergrad at Ole Miss. He was uh, outed as a contributor after a few of these had been published and endured death threats and people shooting at his car on the highway. 
So he did actually stop publishing. And when he returned as a medical student to Ole Miss, he was failed out for his views. And I can't claim I shared his bravery and my understanding, I think, of racism as a teen was pretty unsophisticated. It wasn't informed by adequate dialogue with minoritized friends, for example. But I did know enough at age 16 to sense that some things weren't right. And I wrote an op-ed in our city's newspaper, for example, about the need to remove Confederate monuments from our courthouse lawn that didn't go over so well in 1987. I was also influenced by stories of my great-grandmother. She was widowed, two young kids, by actually the last great pandemic a century ago. And she, in the 1920s, applied to medical school and was accepted. But the misogynistic physicians in her town made their objections pretty darn clear and laid out threats that derailed her plans. So again, I, I don't bring the lived experiences of many minoritized and marginalized uh, colleagues, but I, I hope that these narratives prepared me in a way to commit to a lifetime of listening and learning and to participate in and, and support and amplify and continue to work towards a more equitable future. I'm we have overwhelming evidence of appalling health inequities. And I'm just incredibly proud to be part of an AMA that is reckoning with our past mistakes and, and deeply committed to achieving health equity. Well, Dr. Resnick, um, I'm so excited about your uh, the year ahead of you. I'm gonna look forward to talking with you many times over the coming year uh, about how your presidency is going and the work of the AMA. Again, congratulations uh, on your new position and uh, best of luck this year. We'll see you soon. That's it for today's episode. Uh, we'll be back with another Moving Medicine segment soon. In the meantime, visit ama-assn.org slash podcast to look at all our videos and podcasts. Thanks for joining us today. Please take care. This has been Moving Medicine, a podcast by the American Medical Association. Subscribe to other great AMA podcasts available wherever you listen to yours or visit ama-assn.org slash podcasts. I'm Todd Unger, and this is Moving Medicine.